Good morning. We're glad you're here. We kind of had a privilege to worship together and to dig into the Word. So if y'all turn to Exodus 25, that'll be our text this morning. Exodus chapter 25. Let's pray. Lord, there is no one like you. Lord, we just sang true lyrics to the King of kings and Lord of lords who is good beyond our understanding. Lord, we just sang about how it is well with our souls through every course of life, whether it's high or low, it is well because of our God who is ever-present and more full of compassion than we can comprehend. Lord, we have sang this morning about how it is fitting that all creatures would lift up their voices high to honor you. And I pray that that's been done this morning. But I'm aware that everyone shows up here with having had a different week. Everyone shows up here this morning having gone through different things, different trials, different struggles. Even this morning, there could have been many different frustrations or things to enjoy that went into people getting here this morning. So we're not a perfectly uniform people, but we do have unity in Christ that is a gift and that is perfect. Lord, let that be preserved this morning with the word. Let us be encouraged to move forward in the truth according to your design and not our version of your design. Lord, this morning I want to pray for a fellow pastor in the uh, city that uh, Steve Lawson uh, over at Grace. I pray um, first as he's had uh, health issues as of late and uh, kind of a stomach bug that they can't figure out what's going on. I pray that you would give the doctors insight, wisdom, understanding, discernment, uh, that they would be able to figure out what's going on there and provide some relief for him so that he can move forward in the work that you would have him be about as a pastor, as a husband first, as a father. Lord, I pray for his marriage. I pray that he and Karen are enjoying each other and walking with you and that uh, you are the center of their relationship and that they are uh, encouraged daily in one another as they pursue Christ together. I pray for him as a father. I pray that uh, he would be patient with his children, that he would enjoy his children, that he would lead them as you tell us to lead our children in the word. Constantly putting the word before them, constantly pointing them Christward. Lord, I pray for grace and for, their, for the church there. I pray that you would um, allow them to be a healthy witness to the beautiful reality of Jesus Christ in the city. I pray that you would allow them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be faithful in the expression of truth and walking in that truth as they love others. Lord, we generally pray for a particular city official each Sunday morning. And as I drove here, I was sort of overwhelmed by the thousand signs I passed um, with many different names on them. Lord, I, I feel led to pray in general. Um, this morning that as it's an election year and uh, there's a lot of different things going on, I pray that every name on every sign that represents every man or woman who is either involved in city government or aspires to be involved in city government, I pray that the reason for that would be pure motive. I pray for uh, a city full of people who work in the city government and who have other jobs and who have families here that desire to put your glory on display. I pray for uh, civility and 
patience and encouragement and truth that men and women, especially those who are Christians, would carry themselves in a proper manner, that which is fitting for those who are called the children of God. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified through what is often a very complicated and difficult process given an election year. Lord, as we gather here this morning as a congregation of people proclaiming Christ, I pray that you would use these verses in Exodus 25 to encourage us and guide us according to your will that I believe you are commanding because you are a sovereign king of kings. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 25, particularly verses 8 and 9, is going to be our text this morning. Verse 8 and 9 say this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This week we're going to consider from the text how our covenant relationship, that's a key thing this morning, pay attention to covenant relationship. We're going to consider from the text this morning how our covenant relationship with God sets a pattern for all of life, no matter what life brings. Next week, we're going to look more specifically at the actual details of the pattern that's been set. This morning, I also want for you to know before we dig in that I'll likely not have you turn to a bunch of different scriptures this morning, and I, there's a reason for that. Normally, we go to a lot of different scriptures. There, there's, there's satellites. Um, when I teach and preach, there's, there's so many things to be said, dots to be connected that will go a lot of different places, but this morning, I actually want to approach it a little differently because I want to afford you the opportunity to really climb into your story. We know as we read through Genesis and Exodus that this story is the story of Israel. It's the story of a people, and it is our story as God's children. And so I'm purposefully going to be citing things without having you turn there because I want you to climb into this story and see what's going on here as we are at the base of Mount Sinai, hearing from the Lord God about his desire and his design for our life and our covenant relationship with him. So this week is just the reality that the covenant relationship with God sets a pattern for all of life. In our text that I just read, there are a lot of pronouns that need to be defined. Who is speaking? Who is being spoken to? And further than that, what is it that's being spoken of? Verse 8 says, and let them. Them is Israel. The them that we're talking about here is Israel. If you were here last week, uh, we spent some time in Exodus 14. I had an encouragement this week as I was talking to one of our church members that I, I don't want to throw under the bus, but uh, Ginevra Ott said, um, she said, uh, oh, are you preaching this week? I said, yeah, yeah, I am. She said, oh, good luck. I don't know what the point is. Exodus 14 sermon was like the best one I've ever heard. It's like, okay, I'm going to take that encouragement to the pulpit, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with that, and I appreciate that. So... Um, we were in Exodus 14 last week in the best sermon ever on the face of the earth, and, uh, and uh, we saw Israel on the shore of the Red Sea. Now, what we saw there was that their salvation had been accomplished for them by the mighty hand of God. Israel was on the shore of the Red Sea alive, and every Egyptian sent out by Pharaoh 
that had pursued them through the Red Sea was dead. Not one of them survived. So Israel is sitting there, very, very blessed. Their salvation had been accomplished for them by the mighty hand of God. That same Israel is who we're talking about this week, and as we continue in verse 8, it says, and let them, Israel, make me a sanctuary. The me here is God. God is who we are hearing from, and God is the one who says that I may dwell in their midst. Now, after crossing the Red Sea, Israel eventually makes their way to the base of Mount Sinai, which is our setting for chapter 25. And if you look at the book of Exodus as a whole, the base of Mount Sinai is actually the setting for half of the book of Exodus and a little over the, a year of the life of the Israelites. They would spend about a year, a little more, at the base of Mount Sinai receiving instruction from the Lord via Moses. So that's our setting. Peter Lightheart made an observation that I wanted to see if I agreed with. It's always dangerous when someone significantly smarter than you makes an observation and you want to see if you agree with them. But I, I went to the Word and I wanted to see, is this observation true to the Word? And uh, he said that Exodus 19 through 24, where, where they get to the base of Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, but we need to know that Exodus doesn't stop at the Ten Commandments. A lot of times we stop at the Ten Commandments because there's so many details after that that are hard to read and we get bogged down in them. But it doesn't stop there. In Exodus 19 through 24 is God giving his law, laws about restitution, laws about um, our social interaction with each other, laws about slavery, laws about forgiveness. And so um, he makes the, the observation that Exodus 19 through 24, those five chapters leading us up to 25, is like a wedding that's being officiated by Moses. A wedding that's being officiated by Moses. So let's consider that for a moment. What is being considered here is that Israel is the Lord's bride, and at Mount Sinai, Yahweh marries her. Israel is the Lord's bride, and at Mount Sinai, Yahweh marries her. Generally, at a wedding, a father will walk the bride down the aisle to the marriage altar where the groom awaits and the pastor, through vows and I do's, ushers the bride and groom into a covenant relationship. That's a wedding in a nutshell. If you live in a cave and you've never been to one, that's what it is. In Exodus, we see a bride, Israel, ushered out of Egypt, through the desert, through the Isle of the Red Sea, and eventually to the base of Mount Sinai that is much like the marriage altar. Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord is above the peak of Mount Sinai, and Moses is officiating the ceremony between the two of them. Can y'all climb into that imagery? Can you see what's going on there as Moses goes up the mountain to hear from the Lord and goes back to say everything exactly what he has communicated? The laws given are like the vows that are being made at a wedding. And look at Exodus 24, 3. It's right there on the same page, so you don't necessarily have to turn anywhere. Exodus 24, 3 says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I do. That's like a big corporate I do. Those are two very important words. At this point in Exodus 24, the book of the covenant is read. The blood of the covenant is administered because the covenant has been confirmed. 
Israel is in a covenant relationship with God. Now, this is not a new thing in Scripture. Earlier in Genesis, the nation of Israel, who is the offspring of Abraham, uh, we see in Genesis, God goes into, uh, enters into a covenant with Abraham. And the Israel we're talking about here in Exodus um, is actually the offspring of Abraham, and they only exist as numerous as the sand and the stars because God has remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham. So this isn't a new thing, but Exodus refers to covenant in this way. In Exodus 2, 24, you don't have to turn there, just listen. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In Exodus 6, it says, God says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. And then in the next verse, God says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And then in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. What I hope we hear in those verses is that this is God's covenant with his people. It is the way that the forward movement of the kingdom has always worked. So in Exodus, we're not referring to something that's new, but what we are referring to to is something that is being confirmed. And as part of this confirmation, Moses is called by God to the top of Mount Sinai to receive instruction from the Lord about the specific details of the covenant relationship. That's very important. The details given to Moses are very, very important. And a very central And a very non-negotiable aspect of the covenant relationship is going to be the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the holy place where the Lord will dwell in the midst of his people. At this point in the story, Israel must not miss the weight and the importance and the significance of the pattern of the tabernacle. Now, the first clue to the significance of the tabernacle, before we even look at the details of the pattern next week, is the reality that it is where God dwells. It's where God dwells. Do you care where God dwells? If you're a follower of God, you should care where God dwells. That gives us a clue to the significance of the tabernacle. If Exodus 19 through 24 is a picture of a wedding and a covenant relationship being confirmed, I believe that our context here in Exodus 25 is a picture of the consummation part of the covenant relationship. Now pay attention to these details. If we have a wedding and a covenant being confirmed in the previous chapters, Exodus 25 is a picture of the consummation part of the covenant relationship. What I mean is this. Genesis 4 says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And Enoch, uh, we don't have anything about Enoch and a wife, but Adam, again, uh, knew his wife and conceived and bore Seth. Now, as, as adults, we know what that means, that they knew each other and conceived a child, right? Hopefully, I don't have to explain that because I'm not going to. But knowing is a picture of intimacy. Knowing is a picture of intimacy that exists only within a covenant relationship. It has always been the biblical design that covenant precedes consummation. Now, don't get 
Don't get confused with the words. Come, come to earth with me and see. Here, God is saying to his people that it is through the pattern of the tabernacle that they'll know him. It's through the pattern of the tabernacle. So it would be unfitting for Israel as a bride to care deeply about the covenant relationship and then pay little attention to the pattern of the tabernacle that he shares with them immediately following. Without being too graphic, it would be like going on your honeymoon and forgetting completely about the whole consummation thing. It's significant. Suffice it to say the tabernacle and the pattern set for it is important. God is dwelling in the midst of a redeemed and rescued and freed people who are the recipients of a completely unique love that is lavished upon them by a deeply compassionate God. And what we have to see this morning is that the presence of a big and a holy and a mighty God should have a profound impact on his bride. I want you to consider further that the them in verse 8, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary. The them that we are speaking of is not necessarily a deserving bride. Now, I mention this today because we have vowed here at Crosspoint never to speak of whoredom again on Mother's Day, which is next Sunday. So next Sunday, the whole whoredom thing is off limits uh, from Ezekiel, but this week it is not. Now, don't turn there, but listen to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 refers to Israel, the same Israel that we see in Exodus 25. And it refers to her as a faithless bride. A faithless bride. We need to know what happened between Exodus 25 and Ezekiel 16 for such a horrible thing to be said. What happened? Why would they be called a faithless bride? In Ezekiel 16, verse 8, it actually starts out quite beautifully. It says, God says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. That's what we see in Exodus. I entered into my vows with you. I entered into a covenant with you. And I made you mine. At this point, it looks like good news. It's a happy marriage. And the good news actually continues in the following verse. And God states, You, my bride, grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. Ah, this is, this is beautiful. A covenant relationship with a beautiful bride and a doting groom. Women, wives, do you not feel loved and appreciated and encouraged when you hear your husband speak of your beauty, especially in front of other people? Isn't it a sweet encouragement? That's what we're seeing here in these first verses. But verse 15 sadly shifts. God says, but you trusted in your beauty. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. What I want us to see soberly in these graphic and heart-wrenching verses in Ezekiel 16 is the sad result of a beautiful bride that abandoned the pattern of the tabernacle. That's the sad result of a beautiful bride that abandoned the pattern of the tabernacle and lost sight of the treasure of Yahweh dwelling in her midst. 
That's what happened between Exodus 25 and Ezekiel 16. Do you treasure your closeness to God? If so, how is that expressed? Is it expressed any way you want? Does God have some design for the way you express the the wonder and the beauty and the thankfulness in your heart that he is dwelling in your midst? Do you value it? Do Do you treasure closeness with God? If so, how are you walking in that? Give an example. David Brainerd was a man who ministered to the Indians. Um, the life and diary of David Brainerd is one of the most difficult things I've ever read, and I actually haven't finished it because I, I just kind of want to bang my head against a wall halfway through it because it's the same thing over and over where he's trying to minister to the Indians, and it's so difficult, and they're so hard-hearted. And he went back and forth, David Brainerd did, between the best way to communicate truth and appeal to a people who knew nothing of Yahweh in their context and culture. In the Indian culture, there were a lot of gods, and there was a lot of idolatry, but Yahweh was largely unknown, unexpressed, untalked about. So sometimes David Brainerd would sternly warn them. Sometimes you'll hear from the pulpit a stern warning, and it's appropriate. And sometimes he wouldn't warn them, but what he would use what he calls winsome words of attractiveness. Isn't that a great phrase? Winsome words of attractiveness where he was essentially sharing the beauty and the wonder and the awe of the king of kings entering into a covenant relationship and lavishing forgiveness and compassion and beauty upon an undeserving people. And this is what he found. He found in that context that his observation was there must first be delight in God. He found that the the winsome words actually produced more brokenheartedness in the Indians than did the words of warning. And his observation was there must first be delight in God for there to ever be true grief when that relationship was separated by sin. Do you have grief when your closeness with God is separated by your sin? And what he says is, no one ever cries over missing what they don't want to have. No one ever cries over missing what they do not want to have. In our context in Exodus 25, we could say Israel will never cry over being distant from God if they don't truly want fellowship with God. If Israel will not take seriously the pattern of the tabernacle where God will dwell among them, the sad reality is that they are expressing that they don't really want him to dwell among them if they were to abandon the pattern set forth for them. Now this is where I feel it necessary to consider The one who is speaking to Israel, God, Yahweh, that's who's doing the speaking here. Who knows what's better for Israel, God or Israel? Who knows what's better for you, God or you? Who has a deeper desire for the health of the nations and the future generations of Israel? Would you say that God does or that Israel does? Who cares more about the glory of God, God or Israel? God is the one who is speaking here. What we need to see here is this. God has said to Israel, you are mine. This is how you are to live. You are mine, and this is how you are to live. This pattern of the tabernacle is how we express our love to one another. 
Now, we have to be very careful when we see this. When we say God's saying, okay, your mind, this is how you're to live. We have to know as we're sitting here this morning that God is not talking about how Israel is to earn his favor. They're not trying to earn his favor through the pattern of the tabernacle. We're not talking about how Israel is to keep God's favor. The pattern of the tabernacle did not exist for the purpose of Israel trying to keep God's favor. The pattern of the tabernacle is how Israel is to express their love to God and how he expresses his love to them because they are already in a covenant relationship. Now, at this point, when we shift into verse 9, we have to pay close attention We, like Israel, should be paying close attention to what God is saying because there is no other option when God uses words like exactly. Do you know that God uses words like exactly? Sometimes I'm fearful that we live in a culture that thinks God is anti-exactness. He just wants me to, you know, be cool with him and cool with others and I just kind of do what I want to do and live how I want to live as long as I let him be a part of it. That's not true in the least. He uses the word exactly here. And when we see God, the King of kings, who created all things created, say exactly, we, like Israel, better pay really, really close attention. Verse 9 says this. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it exactly. God has just revealed the stunning and magnificent reality that all of every nation on the earth, the one true God who created all things created is going to dwell with Israel. God has said, of all the earth, I'm choosing you to be my children for the renown of my glory. But he doesn't follow that up with a discussion about what would Israel like for that to look like. This is not a DTR. Does anyone know what a DTR is? The define the relationship talk. That's not what this is. It's not like, well, we're in a relationship. What do you want it to look like? What do you want it to look like? No. God is not a cosmic pushover whose main goal is the king of kings isn't to smother you. I don't want to ask too much of them. I want to give them their space or else they're just going to push me away completely. That's not God. He's not a cosmic pushover. Who are we dealing with here? Who's speaking? He is the king of kings and he is commanding his will. That's how it works in our relationship with God. We don't make deals with God. We don't have a DTR with God where it's like, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? It's ridiculous. He's the king of kings and he commands his will and he uses words like exactly. Not sort of, or if you feel like it, or if it's appealing to you and savory. Exactly. Make me a sanctuary exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. This is important for Israel. Because it makes crystal clear to Israel that this covenant relationship is not to be negotiated. That's what's clear to Israel right there. When they see God say exactly, they're saying, okay, this covenant relationship... It's not to be negotiated. Only negotiate things that are negotiable. Only negotiate things that are negotiable. We'll talk more about that next week, but to give an example, consider the covenant relationship of marriage. 
Is it negotiable? I don't wake up on a Monday morning, look at my wife, and say, well, there's a lot to do this week, honey. Let's take a look at the schedule before we get going. First thing first, are we going to be married this week? It's a pretty busy week. There's a lot going on. Is there, is there actually time in the schedule for us to be married this week, sweetheart? I'm looking at Tuesday, and I've got staff meeting. It's a pretty big deal. Are we going to be married this week? That's absurd. That would be absurd because at that point, what I'm doing is I'm looking at a busy schedule, and I'm beginning to negotiate something that was never meant to be negotiated. My wife would throw her shoe at me if I did that. That would not make any sense whatsoever. Be like, oh, let's talk about that. No, you don't talk about that. It's not negotiable. Don't negotiate things that were never meant to be negotiated. You don't look at a schedule and begin to negotiate something that was never meant to be brought into the equation of negotiation. Because what does that always lead to? Well, that leads to sin. Negotiating non-negotiables will always lead to sin. For the record, my wife is not a violent shoe thrower. I just feel like I should put that out there. Um, She doesn't throw shoes at me often. Um, So, yeah. But you don't negotiate things that are negotiable. Because if you do, um, that leads to sin. Always. If Israel was to enter into a covenant relationship with God and then negotiate the pattern of the tabernacle the exact pattern of the tabernacle, it would actually be worse than me negotiating with my wife, are we going to be married this week? It would be worse. Worse. So it is necessary to feel the weight of negotiating the pattern of the tabernacle where God calls for exactness. This leads me to another question. According to the text, how much exactness is a realistic expectation. How, how much does God exactly expect of his people here, and how much does God exactly expect of us today? What's realistic? What, what, what are we actually talking about biblically? I'll take a moment to shift the focus from Israel to a little bit of personal testimony. I've often struggled with the different definitions of success. The reason I'm bringing up success right now is because it has everything to do with expectations, how we use your time, how we use your resources, how will you move in your relationships, how can we be successful people in life. Success is often defined as finding what you're good at and giving it all that you have. The books on success say things like, no one wants to be a vague generality. True success is learning to become a meaningful specific. This insinuates that if your focus is too broad, you'll never have the hope of being meaningful. Isn't that encouraging? And to take it even further, Christian theologians actually differ in their thoughts on this. One Christian theologian says, all truth is God's truth, so learn as much as you possibly can. While another theologian says, he who knows too much will in the end prove to have known nothing. Okay, I'm a bit confused here. When I look at my life, I have a tendency to get frustrated when I feel spread too thin. You ever experienced that? Are you experiencing that like right now as you're sitting in your chair on a Sunday morning? Remember, we're asking the question as to how much exactness is realistically expected of Israel by God. 
When we feel like there's not enough of us to go around, like we're spread too thin, like there's only 24 hours in a day, God must have made a mistake and not put enough hours in the day. When we do that, do we have a realistic perspective as to what God expects of us exactly? The result, when we feel spread too thin, is we often say things to God like, okay, God, it can be deep or it can be wide, but it can't be both. Do you want for me to do less and do it well? Or do you want for me to do more and all of it be mediocre and lame? Because I can't do a lot of things really good. I can't be exact in a bunch. I can be exact in a few things. But God, how can we be exact in a lot of things? How can, how can I move faithfully in all these things that are on my schedule and on my agenda? The river can be deep, God, or the river can be wide, God, but, but it can't be both. The reality is that what normally happens when God responds to those kinds of things? Like the reality, I think, feel free to correct me quietly if, you're, if I'm wrong, but the reality is that when God takes things off of our plate and we actually have the time to narrow our focus on something particularly, we usually say that we're underwhelmed and we're bored. Is this all I've got to work with? My job stinks. I, all I do is the same thing over and over. We groan, we, mum, we grumble, we, we complain. Or when we pray for more opportunity, God, I want more opportunity. I want a broadened perspective, and God grants it to us. We say we're overwhelmed, and we want to go back to the way it was. Much like Israel crying, in this bitter slavery, Lord, and take us out of Egypt, and then after leaving, saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt by the meat pots where our bellies were full. That's stupidity. That doesn't make sense. That's not good reasoning. That's losing sight of God's faithfulness. We are often foolish creatures, never appeased or content with our circumstances. But what I think this text is showing us as we look deeper into it is we'll find that circumstances were never our real problem. Circumstances are not the real problem here. So I wonder, exactness, according to God. What is the realistic expectation for Israel's exactness? Look at, verse 20, look at chapter 25, and I want to start in verse 1 and just take a small sampling of exactness that we'll dive into more deeply next week. But look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And here we see the exactness. And the contribution that you shall receive from them shall be gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Did anybody fall asleep in the details? It's like I'm reading a grocery list, right? It's difficult to get involved and excited about. Well, maybe if it's just a small portion, we can, we can work through it, right? I'm wondering how much exactness does God really expect of Israel? But then God continues to explain the exactness. 
that he exacts and exactly expects completely of his people through the rest of chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. They get a break in 32 because the golden calf incident picks back up where he goes to exactness in 33, 34, 35, chapter 36, exactness in chapter 37, exactness in chapter 38, exactness in chapter 39, and exactness in chapter 40. Over a third of the book of Exodus is what God expects exactly of his people in this covenant relationship. I think at this point, it is sufficient to say the river can indeed be both deep and wide if God wants it to be. It can. Like an actual river, there is an ebb and flow to life that sometimes narrows our focus and sometimes broadens our focus. Do you trust that God is in control in the ebb and flow? God's aim is not that his people complain and are plagued with discontent whenever there is a shift. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to trust God, learning to be brought high and learning to be brought low, as Paul says, all the while in the highs and the lows, following the pattern that he has set for us. God's expectation for his church is that we do many things and we do them well. There's sort of an epidemic where, well, we're the Mexico Mission Trip Church and we're the inner city ministry church and we're the whatever church and we just kind of have like these, this one thing that we're good at. But I don't think that's biblical. I, I think that we run into those um, issues all the time, and we have to say, are, are, we, are we being true to what the Word says? And I believe that this is saying that the expectation for His church is that we do many things and we do them well. Lots of things are negotiable, but many of them are not. Do you know which details are and are not negotiable when you are moving forward with the ebb and flow of life? Are you guilty of negotiating non-negotiables? The problem with this reality of God essentially calling us to enjoy Christ in every detail according to the pattern that he set for us is that I believe I'm looking largely at a room full of people that daily struggle with the pace and pattern of life. God knew that. God's aware that we struggle with pace and pattern of life. God's aware of our tendency to be overwhelmed and underwhelmed. God's aware of our tendency to hit one ditch and then another ditch and then another ditch. He knows that. Oftentimes I'll hear from individuals who feel dried up and bored and stale in their walk with Christ. You may be sitting here saying, I'm one of those people. Oftentimes, I hear from people who are overwhelmed and feel like their head is about to explode and they're frustrated with anyone who decides to speak to them. I read a Facebook status update this week that said, Lord, today I'm praying for patience because if you give me strength, it will need to come with bail money. And I thought, oh, I've been there. So often we find ourselves in a place where we want to either crawl under a rock or a place where we want to go off on everyone around us, lose our cool, get upset, 
tossed, self-controlled, the wayside. But rarely do I see contentment. I struggle with it personally. Like in the preparation of the sermon this week, I struggled with contentment. I struggle with it pastorally. Pastors struggle, just so y'all know. Like there's no bright light hovering above me. I'm on the ground, not a few inches off of the ground as I preach. Pastors struggle with flesh. Um, sometimes when, when I meet with someone, I, I think to myself, I don't know that you need Jesus. You need a schedule and a budget. You get frustrated. It's easy to get frustrated. You think the, the problems that you're bringing here have nothing to do with Jesus. And if you had a schedule and a budget, your life would not be so crazy. So we're going to teach you some practical skills today, and we'll talk about Jesus later. That's not right. Pastors don't respond like that. People of God don't think like that. It's not true. The problem is actually that Jesus too often has nothing to do with our budget or our schedule. Too often the problem is that it's likely that we have abandoned the pattern of the tabernacle and now we're puzzled as to why God seems so distant. I could get up here this morning and say what is often said from pulpits across the world. Just give your life to God and it'll all be okay. To be truthful, I find that approach is cruel and I don't think that it is what God communicates in Exodus 25. I think he's communicating something much bigger in Exodus 25. Give it to me and it'll all be okay. Let go and let God. Thanks for the quippy saying in my, my horrible season of life. The hardest thing I've ever gone through, is that all you have for me? I don't think God's saying that in Exodus 25. I could minimize what's being expressed in Exodus 25, and I could say this. Only negotiate the negotiables. Prayer, time in the Word, and fellowship with others aren't negotiable. T-ball practice is. See you next week. Does that make you feel good and encouraged in the Word? I think that's cruel and misleading, according to the text. What I mean is that the complexities of humanity are not easy. The problems that people have to work through are not easy. We don't have to come here on a Sunday morning or go to our small groups or meet with our Christian brothers and sisters and act like things are 99% peachy when they're not. God doesn't expect that. But what God does expect is that we heed the pattern that he has set for us. What I mean is this. I want to give you a sampling of what I've seen just in the last month, one month of ministry. A lady who has been without work finally receives a job offer and on the very same day receives the news that she has breast cancer. That's complex. You don't hit her with a let go and let God. That's complex. That's difficult. There are things, thoughts, emotions, Feelings you have to work through to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord through such a season. Two parents who love Jesus are trying to figure out how to best disciple their adopted daughter who was abused so badly in the womb that there is a physical, chemical, and neurological disconnect between her heart and her mind. That's complex. Let's not be flippant with such things. An adult is trying to work through relationship and trust issues with the baggage 
of the scars of having their trust violated as a child. That's pretty complex. That's hard. Are there deep things to work through there? Absolutely. A couple sits in a hospital room, cuddling and cherishing the newborn that they are to adopt, only to find out that the birth mother has changed her mind and wants to keep the baby. That's complex. The counsel needed in that situation is not just, we don't be flipping about such things. The untimely death of a loved one that makes you really struggle, maybe even with your own faith. That's complex. A man who has been doing the same work for the majority of his adult life, but the climate has changed, the housing market has crashed, and he's trying to figure out how to faithfully provide for his family in a completely new career. That's complex. A woman volunteering at a clinic views on a sonogram machine the heartbeat of a child that will likely never be seen again because the child will most likely be aborted within the next 24 hours. That's pretty complex. You have to go home after that and live life with the thought of that little heartbeat in your mind. Infidelity, depression, infertility, doubt, anxiety, addiction, All are complex issues of the human life that God does not want us to deal with flippantly or godlessly. I want us to see that's why he gives us the pattern. That's the riches and joy of the pattern that he sets forth for us. This reality was an encouragement for Israel and it's an encouragement for us today. Your creator has entered into a covenant relationship with you And he has set up a pattern of life full of Christ-centered details as a spouse, as a parent, as a worker, everywhere you go, conversations you have, Christ-centered details everywhere. We'll talk more about them next week. But your creator has entered into a covenant relationship with you and has set up a pattern of life full of Christ-centered details because he alone truly understands the, the complexities of your life. Some people feel that it's, it sort of doesn't validate their problems if all that I have for them is God. That says that you don't understand the beauty and the depth and the love and the compassion who is, who is God. I don't validate the horrible, difficult seasons of your life by putting God to the side for a moment and talking about how you feel. The only way we make sense of how you feel is to keep our eyes on the Lord. There's no other way to work through those things. You will sometimes have to move and love and relate and even forgive others in spite of the way you feel because you trust God and the pattern that he has set before you. There will be times where you look at someone and say, I don't want to forgive you, but I forgive you because I trust that my God says that's not negotiable. I will serve you, even though I don't feel like it, because I trust that God says that's a non-negotiable. God loves us by not being flippant and vague about the details of our life. We act like that's what we want so much, where we say, 
God, I love you. You're King of kings and Lord of lords, but please don't meddle in the details of my life. That would be so unloving for God to do that. God loves us by not being flippant and vague about the details of our life. He loves us by setting a pattern of life for us in which we receive the blessing of fellowship with him in Christ in every detail. He loves us by remaining in our midst in the daily, menial, mundane movements of life. He doesn't say, pretend it's not mundane, pretend it's not menial, pretend it's not daily. He says, no, no, those are realities, and I'm with you, and I care about every detail. God says, I love you by dwelling in your midst and reminding you to be exact in regards to the pattern of life that he has set forth for us in the word. Many of us run into problems and we look for quick fixes. Okay, I got an issue. What? Someone give me something, quick. Quick fixes. But what we need to see in this text is that a pattern of faithfulness is very different than a quick fix. A pattern of exactness toward your God is very different from quick fixes when we hit the problems and the ditches and the frustrations and the heartaches. We work through the heartache and the frustration in keeping with the pattern. The pattern of faithfulness is different from quick fixes. This morning, I feel like we should respond with Israel. In the same manner that we cannot say that we are married to someone and disregard the pattern and details of marriage, so we cannot say we are in a covenant relationship with God and then disregard the pattern of life that he sets forth for us. This morning, let us, like Israel, be careful not to negotiate things that were never meant to be negotiated. We have to be careful about that. Let us, like Israel, in the ebb and flow and the highs and lows of life, pay careful attention to a God who loves us abundantly and specifically by not leaving us to figure out the details on our own. There's a life of exactness that he sets before us because he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, everything within me right now wants to go into the second part of this sermon. I want us to look at the details and be so encouraged at how you intentionally overwhelm us with Christ. So I pray uh, that as we have heard and seen from this text that you are in our midst and you call for exactness according to the pattern of life you set before us, I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from responding to that in a way that's works-based. Lord, all that we've talked about this morning is, is to be lived out in, in faith, not, not works. Lord, I am so comforted by these two short verses in Exodus 25 where I see a God who does care about the details of my life and a God who calls me not to be flippant about the details and not to exclude him from the details. Lord, I pray that you would work in your people a pattern of living where we don't lose sight of you in the ebb and flow and the difficulties and the highs and the lows. As Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of wanting and being in need. Help us to learn that, but help us not to learn it by abandoning the pattern that you've set for us. We love you, Lord. We trust your design. We trust that the King of kings and Lord of lords does not make mistakes. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
a few weeks ago when we uh, came to the Lord's Supper time, we looked at Psalm 23 at uh, the banqueting table that God prepares before us in the midst of our enemies. And we enjoyed this meal here together. And then that afternoon we went home and our enemies were still there. But that doesn't change the fact that we enjoyed a meal, a banqueting table, fruit of the vine and bread, right in front of our enemies. That didn't change the truth of that, even though they didn't go away. In light of the complexities of humanity, in light of dominion, in light of an, a world that's being placed under our Savior's feet, and in light of an enemy that is being destroyed, sometimes it seems a bit premature to celebrate with the fruit of the vine and bread. In Genesis 14, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 14, Abram goes and rescues his nephew Lot from an evil king, takes 300 and something men, and he goes and rescues Lot, knowing that there are promises, knowing that there's a land that he's supposed to take, that his people will take. With that promise hanging over, he goes to rescue Lot. And he rescues Lot, and God gives him the victory over the evil king. And as they're moving back, the mysterious figure Melchizedek shows up with bread and wine, and they celebrate. And after Abram and Melchizedek share that wine and bread, and they share a celebration meal, Abram walks from that meal to more intentional wondering. It would be years before God's people would enter the promised land, after that celebration meal. It would be years. Jesus celebrates this meal at the Last Supper. And what happens? He's crucified. And so while we stand on a promise and we celebrate today a celebration meal, we will many times walk into this week into what seems like still a wasteland. And so what do we do with that? What is this supper doing? What are we doing here? We are celebrating and taking a feast of faith. We are taking this meal in faith and trusting and believing his promises so that we will endure this week. We will walk and continue to walk in this exactness in faith, believing. And it keeps us enduring and in believing and faith. And those words faith and believe are thrown around so much. They're on sports team shirts. And Hallmark is full of the word faith and we can't let those words get beat up because we are a people who will take a meal now in faith. And we will move from this meal back to wastelands and we will do what? We're going to believe. Let's pray. Father, as we take this meal, we pray and trust 
that you are true and right and that you have prepared this meal for us this morning in the midst of our enemies. And in the midst of complexity, we believe you are placing all things under Christ's feet. We believe that the enemy is being destroyed. And so Christ, through Christ, we pray that you would give us strength to do one thing this morning via this meal to keep believing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we keep believing, we don't um, keep believing in positive thinking. We don't, we don't keep believing that something good would happen this week so we can make it through. We don't keep believing that we might do better. We keep believing there's only one option for us. There's only one place where 10,000 charms are found. And we keep believing in a body broken and a finished work. Keep trusting in Christ. Take and eat. Three, one by blood, celebrated with the fruit of the vine. Take and drink. Father, as we respond in worship through the giving of tithes and offerings, I pray that it's appropriate and it is a giving out of a generous and grateful heart, not attempting to earn anything, but responding because of the victory won and responding in worship out of gratefulness that's generous and sacrificial. Purge our hearts as we give. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Sometimes, you know, with Scott preaching or Brad or Steve preaching, my voice is changing. I'm going through, you know, young, young man. I might look old, but I'm actually young. Um, when I'm sitting there, I'm kind of thinking through our corporate worship time through the lens of uh, someone who may be visiting or through someone who may have been visiting, you know, come periodically or come for a short period of time. And I was thinking about the number of songs that we sing or how long our sermon might be and thinking of how, how that might be a little bit foreign. Let me encourage you to think about the time that we spend together in light of Scott's sermon this morning like a date with your wife. There's some things you don't want to be efficient and some things you don't want the clock to even be on the radar. You want, hopefully, to have the kind of time that you have together where you come home and the babysitter's looking at you saying, where you been? <laughs> you could have called. Because you lost, you lost yourself in time together. So there's no goal here of 30-minute worship service. It's a date with our God. It's quality time with our God. So I'm thankful for those of you who are here this morning. And if you're kind of like, man, this is a little bit foreign, hang with it, stick with it. You get a taste of it. And then you're like, man, I don't want it to leave. I don't, I don't want it to end. I don't want to leave. God, we are so thankful for our date with you this morning. We're thankful for an opportunity to sit and enjoy you. Marvel that you would betroth and then wed the likes of us. Lord, I pray if anything, what will become of the time that we spent together will be a, a contentment with inefficiency with you. 
and a contentment with enjoying you and a perspective about the rest of life. Lord, I pray that the time that we spend with you, like the time that we spent together this morning, will condition us to learn more and more to just enjoy you. Lord, we are thankful. We trust you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.